0: As the founders thinking about scale if they don't already have advisors who truly understand the space then they need to get them otherwise they need to stay out because you'll get chewed up in the defense market if you don't know what you're doing you cannot have the best product the best product does not win in this space that's the reality it can win but that's only if it happens to be accompanied by a very (laughs) strategic and compelling go-to-market team Right. So there's a whole bunch of other things that you have to think about that you don't have to think about in other markets and they are defined for you. You don't have to guess at what those challenges are, but great advisors will help tee that stuff up.
1: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome to the Breakline Arena, everyone. My name is Sam Combs. I am the head of partnerships here at Breakline, and I truly could not be more excited about today's conversation. We're really going to dig deep on all things defense tech. We're going to talk about the state of the market today. We're going to talk about the evolutions that we've seen over the past decade or so. And to join us for that conversation, we're joined today by someone who's lived it for the past 10 plus years. Uh, we're joined by the Senior Vice President of Enterprise Services at BMNT, William Tressiter. William, seriously, cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day, especially on a holiday week, to join us in the arena.
0: Thank you, Sam. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Well, let's jump right in. Before we get to the defense tech space and kind of the state of the market, I'd, I'd love to rewind a bit and, and hear more about your journey. You know, when I look back and, and we had a conversation a week or two ago, and learning more about your professional journey and the stops you've made along the way. What stood out to me was, you know, it was a professional experience or journey that maybe wasn't totally linear. And I think that resonates a lot with the Breakline community, folks that are going through a career transition on their own, whether it's from government to industry, from one industry to another. And would love to have you talk us through what that journey was like, kind of starting as an enlisted Marine and, and Spending your time there and then ultimately building your career to the point it's at today.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sam. I think the way that I have tried to frame this to other folks as they're getting out of the military, exactly because of the point you just made, is that there really are two options, broadly speaking. And it's not that these are actually the options, but just that you want to force yourself to consider both things. And people intuitively gravitate to one or the other. So the question is are you starting another chapter in the same book? Or are you starting another book, right? And I know a lot of people who want to build that continuity in their lives. They want to feel like there is a strong connection between what they did in the military and what they did afterwards. And I know there are just as many people who think that they want to go and completely reinvent themselves somewhere else. So I was one of the latter, right? Because I also joined, I enlisted pre-9-11, for those of you who know the best Recruiting commercial of all time. You know, I joined to fight lava monsters on a laser bridge with a sword, which made absolutely no sense. Right. But if there's a fantastic YouTube, you know, YouTube captures everything. So if you want to look at those late 90s Marine recruiting commercials, they were really kind of like peak culture. They absolutely were. Yeah. They absolutely were. So I joined, you know, there was no war pre 9 11. When I got out and I, you know, went through my first four, I knew that I didn't want to be a career Marine. I just knew that I didn't want to be a lazy fat pothead, which is what I was when I finished in high school. I didn't like having my life be worse every day. Every day I got up, I knew that I was going to be a worse person when I went to bed at night. I needed to reverse a negative trajectory. And the only kind of choice that was available to me at the time felt like the military. I knew I didn't have what it took to succeed in college. And I knew that because I had a very low GPA. Even as I when I got out of high school and I started to lose weight to qualified, even enlist in the Marines. I couldn't even join. I was 80 pounds overweight. I tried to go to community college as an 18 year old and I promptly flunked out like less than six weeks later. I just wasn't capable of doing what I needed to do. So the Marine Corps to me was this way to try to reconstitute myself as a functional human, right? The Marine Corps was going to pull me back together and kind of give me the skills that I needed. And it absolutely did. So When I was getting out and thinking about what I wanted to do when I got out, I knew I wanted to take another stab at academia. So I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to try to figure out what that meant. But I was starting back over from scratch. And I think that's something that it's a feeling that I have ended up having multiple times in my career. Man, I'm really just figuring this out as I go. And I think that the way that you can rapidly progress when you throw yourself into something using the discipline that you get in the military, it's incredible. The discipline to build your daily life around rapid learning is is amazing. And you can just do so much. And I've seen so many people get out of the military and fight through that sense of imposter syndrome to just really take off. And so in my academic version of that was starting in 2005, in in the summer, I had to take remedial classes for English and math. And then... Less than two years later, I was the valedictorian of my community college, graduating with an associate's degree, and then having earned a transfer spot at Stanford University, which is available to under 1% of the folks who apply in the transfer community. And that wasn't because I was a different person at the end of those two years. It was because I had applied the skills that I had picked up in the Marine Corps against a relatively clear set of goals, which was, you know, transfer to an amazing four-year institution to get my bachelor's degree. And so I had a very clear goal and then I really pushed myself to get to that level, but I wouldn't just wanting to do it didn't make a difference. The difference was having the discipline. So in a very practical daily way, I didn't change that much about my daily routine. I just pointed at a different target, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it totally does. And I think one thing that stands out to me just as I was listening to you recap that experience was... This sensation of starting from scratch, you spent four years in the Marines, you know, at the end of four years, even if you're wanting to get off, get out of the service and and move on to something new, you have built a level of comfort and familiarity with that system, with that community, with that culture. And there's something fairly intense or intimidating when you step away from that into something unfamiliar. Um, I know we hear it all the time with brake liners, whether they're coming from the military, whether they're coming from a different industry you mentioned imposter syndrome specifically i'm curious like as you made that transition into academia initially what allowed you to kind of step into that void with confidence and was it falling back on the discipline was it confidence in yourself were there things that you look back on and say you know i really had to rely on that skill set to be successful to overcome that imposter syndrome
0: That's a great question. It is not confidence in myself. So I do not identify with people. My wife is somebody who's supremely confident in her own abilities and is very goal-oriented and just crushes life and gets where she needs to get to. I very much rely on my daily routine. I'm a systems person and a disciplined person. So I need to build my life to give me that momentum because if I'm relying on my personal desire to do it or my belief in myself, that fluctuates a ton from day to day. So that's something on which I can't rely. I would say that the people that helped me the most as I was getting started back in school, absolutely my mother, my father. I sent everything to them for review, not math, but I mean all the English stuff I was doing. (laughs) Right, just constantly getting feedback from my family. I just needed other people to kind of look at things and help me understand I was on the right track. Even if they didn't say that much, just knowing that I could rely on some other people who knew me and loved me and wanted to see me succeed, that was huge. Over time, I found people who shared interests with me that were from other irregular backgrounds. So, so my best friend, Josh Ireland, amazing guy, childhood leukemia survivor, fantastic dude. He was, he was my philosophy tutor in community college my very first semester. And he happened to be in student government with me. And then we just sort of connected. And we're again, like I said, we're still best friends, you know, 20 years later. The connection with him was super strong and his sort of quest to learn about things. And he had a different perspective on life than I did. But we shared one common interest. That was really helpful. And I think that was really interesting because when I transferred to Stanford, I didn't find that same ability to kind of hook in with people. So I think it's a more of a, Stanford's more of a monoculture, like very aesthetically diverse, but in terms of mindset, cultural background, all, all that kind of stuff, people s- share that sort of global techno elite sort of world, right? They all kind of think about things the same way, which is not necessarily, a, it's not whether or not that perspective is the right perspective, but it meant that I really had a hard time hooking into the community. So I wasn't able to find those people as easily that shared those interests that allowed me to forge a deep and rewarding friendship with folks who are not in the military. So I did have a few people who were returning students who were former enlisted folks. But there was three of us the first year I was at Stanford. And then I think seven the second year I was at Stanford. That's a pretty small pool of people that you can call your close friends. And that was part of the reason why it was paradoxically harder for me at Stanford than it was at community college, because there were more people from different backgrounds, and I could build relationships then. And that helped sustain me and push me forward versus places where people looked and kind of thought all the same, and they didn't seem to have a lot of the same challenges that I had. I think I've had folks say similar things to me as they're making the transition after, say, even 10 or 15 or 20 years out of the military, because they might be joining an industry more in a mid-career or senior career position but they don't have the same trajectory and mindset and language that a lot of people do, say, went to a pedigreed MBA program or uh, you know, they did top-tier consulting or worked at like the name brand big tech companies or something like that. You learn a way of engaging and living from those kinds of experiences. They pick things up by osmosis, and we are other to them. right? We don't talk about the same things. We haven't had the same formative experiences, and that makes it a lot more difficult to find ways to build deep and meaningful relationships with those kinds of folks. It's definitely, uh, it can't be, there's no playbook for it. It's just the individual people that you, you know, with whom you connect deeply, that you really think, okay, I can trust this person. I can start to share parts of myself that make me who I am. And then that person will be willing to reciprocate with me, which means they don't just see me as like a veteran, right? They look at me as something definitely. more, than, right? As who I am, not a part of my identity.
1: Right. It's striking to think back to the moment that you were at Stanford, you're in the Valley, you're coming out of the Marines, kind of that is one very clear environment kind of culturally to be in. Mm-hmm. And then the transition to an environment that is probably night and day difference between yeah. what your life is like and your lived experience is like in the Marines to now be in this place like Stanford that is so dramatically different. I mean, of, of course, as you're talking about it, it has the challenges that you have to work through at an individual level. But I'm curious, did that experience also inform or shape kind of the direction you decided to take your career in terms of where you wanted to apply your time professionally?
0: I didn't know it at the time, but yes. So when I got to Stanford, I had just gotten back from Iraq. I got back in August of 2007. In September of 2007, I stepped on campus. And in November, you know, obviously, it was Veterans Day. There was nothing on campus, no celebrations, not a peep from the administration, student body, anything. It was just a regular day. And I asked one of my professors at the largest class I was taking, Rob Reich, who's a, who's a phenomenal professor, one of the first people who supported Teach for America, like really, really great guy, great patriot. He allowed me to go speak to our class, to like stand in front of the class. And I am... Even though it's more appropriate for Memorial Day, I still love In Flanders Fields. I just it's one of, by by the Canadian John McCrae, who actually died several months after writing the poem set in World War One. I. I just could I love that poem. I just I've read it a bunch of times to my kids and to a lot of other people, anyone who listen. But I still can't make it through without crying. So I'm standing in front of a couple hundred Stanford students and I'm reading this poem and I'm crying. And there's this guy in the back of the room. Joe Felter, who was a special forces colonel, PhD from Stanford, phenomenal dude, helped stand up the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. And he was giving a guest lecture that day. There was another professor who had called him sick. So he just randomly happened to be the one giving this lecture on, on, on counterterrorism. And he came to me afterwards and was like, I don't know who you are, but that was really weird. And like, can you, okay, let's like talk a little bit or whatever that was. So that was, or excuse me, that was 2008, excuse me, not 2007. But so that's the that was the day I met Joe in, you know, fast forward, you know, four years, Joe's asking me to join as a co-founder at BMNT. And so could I obviously, did I know that at the moment that he came to me at the end of the class and just decided to start up a conversation? Like, of course not. But we connected on, the, on that level. And so I think that particular moment, me like bawling like a little kid in front of these, these hundreds of students, I think it actually kind of captures a lot of the way that at that time I felt about Silicon Valley as it related to my own experiences in tech, which is obviously so different than where we are today. But it is emblematic. of What we had to deal with at the time was not that people didn't like the military. We weren't even in a Maven, Project Maven kind of situation where people were protesting, you know, working for the military or anything like that. It, we just didn't matter. We were completely irrelevant. And I felt that deep, there was like a void for me of, I can't believe no one cares, this doesn't matter. So that was my kind of context for my stumbling transition out of the military into academia and then eventually into startups was just meeting a very few people who saw the world the way that I did and said, yeah, this is crazy that people are just completely oblivious to what's going on at the time, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan and so many other places around the world. And that led to a series of conversations over the next couple of years while I was at Stanford. It got me engaged with the president's office, helped get funding for the ROTC program so that they could travel without paying out of pocket to go to their different campuses because ROTC was at Berkeley, Army was at Santa Clara, and Air Force was at San Jose State. So literally Stanford undergrads with no money were paying out of pocket to drive to Berkeley and you know pay for their own gas and parking and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of crazy. Anyway, and President Hennessy was very supportive. It led to a bunch of conversations with the Stanford Center for the Haas Center for Public Service. It just kicked off a bunch of really great stuff. And then Stanford launched a bunch of programs around it and it kind of snowballed, which was wonderful. And now there's an office for military affiliated communities, OMAC, and a bunch of other stuff. And they have great Veterans Day celebrations, Marine Corps birthday, Memorial Day, all these kinds of things. That's not because of me. At the time, the point of the conversation and the problems we were trying to solve as a a veteran military community in Silicon Valley were very much defined by the fact that we were completely irrelevant to what was happening. Mm. Almost no one knew or cared. And that was 2008, 2009. And in that time, you know, slowly, the seeds were planted. Palantir was already in existence. You know, there was some, a couple other companies. Obviously, in was in Silicon Valley, but there was no DIU. There was nothing else happening. The def hadn't been out for, you know, over 15 years. It was just sort of a very sleepy place from a defense tech perspective. That was the world that I walked into.
1: It's fairly incredible to think about, especially in the moment we're in right now, where defense tech is everywhere. I mean, you've seen it now over the past 15 years, the evolution of where we were in 2008, 2009. I mean, the words that you used, you know, it was the defense tech market was just irrelevant. Like The community was oblivious to what was going on, Mm -hmm. to where we are now. And I'm I'm curious, I'd love for you to just walk through some of those evolutions and the most significant changes to the defense tech industry that you've seen over the past 15 years to go from that moment where you were kind of living this experience of it it felt like just no one was was paying attention to everything happening globally or with the DOD specifically mm-hmm. to where we are today where it seems like such a tremendous synergy or, or integration between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon or the DOD
0: yes it is pretty amazing to reflect on it the first consequential visit that we had through Bmnt was meeting Ben Coleman and a bunch of his crew, Rich Walsh and Josh Steinman and some other folks, the chief of naval operations had stood up a rapid innovation cell, the CRIC, the Crick. And they came out to the valley. They were visiting places that we now, in the defense tech world, we might know, like Sail Drone and places like this are being stood up. They, these were sort of early thought leaders in the space, so junior military officers, some mid and senior level enlisted sailors who were just doing some really interesting, groundbreaking thinking. and. Some of their efforts led to a proposal back up to the CNO, who then pushed to the SecDef around standing up an outpost in Silicon Valley, which is what generated the original DIUX, the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. That you know had to go through three foundings before Raj Shah was the one who was able to you know on his way out the door they were able to lop off the X right and say okay it's not experimental anymore this thing kind of really works and then you know as Mike Brown and now Doug Beck uh, took over leadership. Doug Beck will tell the story that. Initially, the, the issue was if we have meetings with tech companies, will people even show up, right? And then it became, you know, can we get them to want to partner with us if we have these lightweight contracting vehicles? And now there's a much deeper relationship around kind of strategic impact of better harnessing the work between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley. And all, all those, there's obviously like any story, it's oversimplifies it, but it's not wrong. The kinds of things that happened between the CRIC coming out and, and DIUX being founded, then NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, set up an outpost in the Valley. DHS set up an outpost in the Valley. You started to have conversations around this stuff, like kind of what were people trying to do and like how do you engage in the ecosystem? That became very interesting, very refreshing to see that kind of work. I think the other piece that was huge in terms of creating a dent in The student community, which is a sort of leading indicator of where startups will go, right, was Hacking for Defense, launching Hacking for Defense. We did a prototype in 2015, and then the the class launched to great fanfare and reception in 2016. And then it became, you know, an OSD level program supported by MD5, which became the National Security Innovation Network, which is now being pulled back into DIU. It's sort of a full circle thing. but. That's been, you know, worked through thousands of national security problems across dozens of universities around the country, which is wonderful and scaled internationally, which is great. But that was one of those big, important, high-profile changes. So there's things picked up in like Fast Company and other media. Like there was, there was a lot of this media attention around, wow, these like Stanford students are getting engaged in this. That got some defense like, or some investors. I like to use the phrase defense curious to describe a lot of these folks who are kind of, you know, they're on, they're on the cusp. <laughs> That attracted. So now you have this growing group of people who are interested in that kind of stuff. And around the same time, Anderl was founded, Palantir had really started to get a lot of traction. Obviously, from a purely from a space perspective, SpaceX started to do well, and really pick up steam. And so I think you started to see this, the way Heather Richmond, one of my colleagues at BMNT puts it, is that we we went from a push to like a pull. It was very interesting to see how the dynamics changed and people sort of wanting to engage in these conversations. She actually, a few years ago, gave form to that and voice to that was standing up the Defense Investors Network, which started, that's maybe five years old, and just an incredible, again, informal network of people who have self-selected in the space to say, I really care about defense. I work in national security or I'm interested in national security, but I'm an investor. This is my day job. I have a bunch of portfolio companies I need to help be successful. I have a bunch of LPs I need to get returns for, but I know that this is an important part of the conversation. And each of these things, you know, incrementally has added to this sort of movement to get people in the tech community. It's not just Silicon Valley, but it's obviously Silicon Valley as a proxy as the shiniest part of this whole ecosystem. Just to say, you can use the same techniques that we started to pioneer in the 90s that became really kind of enshrined in the lean startup world, right? Late aughts, early 2010s. You can use that to build defense tech. It may not be solely defense tech, but you can build companies that sell into the defense industrial base using that kind of methodology, which generates you know rapid growth. And that's really interesting because that's not how the defense industrial base normally works. And if you can do that, then money will come, which means you now have investors who are interested because the model has started to de-risk and you started to see returns coming for companies that look like the kinds of companies that we want more of. If you think about things from a U.S. government, you know, defense, deterrence through, you know, peace through strength. If you believe in that strategy, you need commercial tech. There's no way to get around that. You need the methodology. Most importantly, you need the talent that looks at there, say, using a simple example. If you're graduating from Stanford, just use that as the sort of archetype university, you can go multiple directions. Like, why would you choose defense? I mean, it was amazing to be on campus in the late aughts where you had... You know, half the computer science department, the undergrads choosing Palantir every year like clockwork. They were just a recruiting machine because it wasn't about the money. The money is important and you need to believe that the company will grow, obviously. But there was a huge mission driven aspect to why these folks were choosing Palantir over other options that were probably significantly more lucrative for them. Right. Why would you do that? Well, because part of it is like life's not just about making money. Right. And there's a feeling of giving back, there's a desire to want to be a part of a mission. And then be a part of people around who also share that ethos versus being one mission-driven person and a group of people who are all focused on profit or making money or just kind of advancing tech. And sort of tech to what purpose? So connecting the tech back to something that really matters. And more people started raising their hands and saying, hey, I'm kind of like that too. That's how I'm built. And then, you know, somebody else raises their hand and says, oh, you're built like that? I'm built like that too. I care about that a lot more. And then, you know, then that's how the movement continues and builds momentum. And you start to see everything that you see now, which is there's so much undirected activity happening all the time. There's more defense startup related activity now and on any given day than there was in an entire year 10 years ago. You know, it's several orders of magnitude more in terms of funding, in terms of capabilities being deployed or tested and evaluated pulled into contracts to be, you know, to be funded and sustained so the government can take advantage of them. It's, it's pretty amazing.
1: It is. And I'm curious, I mean, because you outlined at a high level, you know, the developments or the evolutions across the DevTech system or ecosystem that we've seen over the past 10, 15 years. But I mean, you're interfacing with new startups, new founders all the time that are breaking mm. into this space. Like, Beyond kind of the system level, what are the the tangible benefits that you've seen in in terms of this type of progress across the industry, and how that's translating down to an individual founder or translating down to a new company that's trying to break into defense for the first time?
0: It's gone through waves. So early on when we started BMNT, Pete and Joe and I, Jackie, their co-founder and I had all individually ended up bumping into this guy was a PhD candidate at the time. He was an MIT undergrad, Air Force officer, Jason Rathje. No one knew who he was, except he was just really, really smart. Uh, and his wife is awesome. And, you know, we just got along and it was, it was great, right? I think he, I forget when he earned his PhD. I think it was like 16, 17, something like that. But, you know, that's the brainchild behind AF Ventures and pushed a lot of the AFWorks. Works. He, most importantly, he convened the team of folks that kind of became the AF Ventures AF Works. So repurposing, you know, SVIR as sort of a sleepy backwater program that was sort of an an also ran, at least in the Air Force, into something that uses a mechanism to start a conversation with the startup community by saying, you know, bring us these interesting ideas and we can get you on contract to get you a little bit of money to prove it out and then more money if there's really interest after, you know, your phase one. That was a first attempt. It's easy to throw stones at it now and to point out a bunch of issues with how that did or didn't work. But it did change the conversation. It got a lot of companies interested where you had a founder who was saying, well, you know, this is what I'm raising money to do or this is what I've already raised money to do. And then, oh, wow, there's this other market that I hadn't considered. And why would I pursue this market? And what is there? I mean, there's all the traditional things. If you ask yourself, what does a great business look like? It looks like a business that has a customer where once you're a customer, the revenue is very, very sticky, right? And that's, you know, long-term recurring revenue. So the ultimate... Prize, I think, always of working with the government is not just being connected to the mission and knowing the way you do matters. It's also that as a business, it's great to have at least a revenue stream that looks like that, where the churn is way lower and you can, that allows you to do all kinds of interesting stuff. That's the long term vision. I think earlier on, where things get really interesting are where you are able to enter into tight prototyping spaces with the governments more than the money. I think this is where a lot of people get really interested in the special operations community, is that they have discretionary income. They don't have long-term recurring revenue. They're not a big market, but they're a very liquid market. They make a lot of decisions within the year. They do really hardcore testing. They give you a lot of great feedback. It may not be the, it may not make sense for any particular founder's product or what they're trying to do in the market but it certainly works for a lot of them. So you see a lot of really interesting stuff. Most of the kind of named drone companies or, or autonomous systems companies, they did meaningful early work, if not have continued to do meaningful work with a special operations community. So that's one place a lot of people go. That's a parallel and and distinct path from like more traditional SBIR uh, the small business innovation research funding. And now you've also seen the emergence of some more startup friendly primes. So this is really interesting and people have to be really careful about. There was an article recently that came out talking about Lockheed Martin Ventures, RTX Ventures, and then Booz Allen Ventures, Booz Allen Hamilton Ventures. And for a startup founder, thinking through why you would want to work with any of these companies, understanding what's different, Lockheed Martin Ventures is just fundamentally different from Booz Allen Hamilton Ventures. I mean, so to understanding at a basic level, well, this company sells big systems into the DoD. Right, they have a massive internal research and development budget. They build a lot of stuff in house. They have thousands or tens of thousands of engineers. Over here, you have more people, services, contracts, right? And they're not great at building products necessarily, but they really love the product you have. And they could wrap some folks around your product and shove it into the DoD and, and probably dramatically increase their p-win, their probability of winning a proposal, and their disc- you, you know you're giving a big prime like discriminating factors so that can help them stand out in an evaluation. And they know that they can't do what you do. So it's a very clear and clean separation. So it's not that Lockheed Martin Ventures is bad and Booz Allen Ham- Hamilton Ventures is good or vice versa. It's just that as a startup founder, those conversations need to start with what are you trying to accomplish and what is your business trying to do? Because for Booz Allen, is almost like you get some investment and they're sort of like outside sales for you. They can connect you to contract vehicles and, and other stuff like that. And it's in their interest to do so. How that flows in terms of IP and other things, that's the creative space that a founder needs to be thinking about. But I have friends who have started companies that that are portfolio companies of both of those as examples, and they can both work. It's not a fun answer, but it depends is usually the right way to think about it. But, you know, if you want to get early user feedback and you want to that some of that might be self-funded, some of that might be paid for. And if you want to then also have an SBIR arm and you want to be thinking about how to work with the primes, there's, these are all kind of distinct and valid growth pathways. And eventually they lead to the natural discussion for a founder, which is like, what's the long-term play here? Am I, there are some options depending on what you're selling to do direct to fielding, which means that you don't have to actually get into the acquisitions process. There's a different set of challenges, but that's an option versus, okay, I need to get a government program manager to start to put me, my company into their budget long-term, which is usually called palming, but it's palming for funds. And that's, you know, usually two to three years out, you can get some intermediary funding. There's things like TACFI, StratFi, AppFit, things like this that that you can use. But in general, it means that you're not going to get big sticky revenue until two to three years out. So, and even then you're not guaranteed, right? So there's so many different factors you have to think through. And so much of it is just based on the core idea. So to go back to like what the founder needs to do, as a founders thinking about scale, if they don't already have advisors who truly understand the space, then they need to get them. Otherwise, they need to stay out because you'll get chewed up in the defense market if you don't know what you're doing. You cannot have the best product. The best product does not win in this space. That's the reality. It can win, but that's only if it happens to be accompanied by a very strategic and compelling go-to-market team. Right, so there's a whole bunch of other things that you have to think about that you don't have to think about in other markets, and they are defined for you. You don't have to guess at what those challenges are, but great advisors will help tee that stuff up.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I think this point of it's not just the most elegant solution; it's an elegant solution delivered in the way from a go-to-market motion that has a shot to win. That really creates the winning recipe in defense. I think one of the things that I find so interesting about this space is. And you've touched on it throughout this entire conversation, but it's just this intersection of different parts of the country, whether it's industry, academia, and government kind of all being at the table at the same time to bring to bear a solution that's impactful for the nation. You made a decision from a professional perspective at a personal level to go back into to the Marines as a reservist uh, with the Marine Innovation Unit. And so that kind of bring in this intersection of government alongside industry, and I'm curious you know what prompted that decision to ultimately go back in as a reservist to join this team and would love to just learn more about the work that you all are doing and the mission that you all have uh, across the core
0: my wife thought i was joking when i said <laughs> that i was interested first she thought i was joking then she got a little upset not too upset to her credit but it took her a while to kind of process that i was actually serious and again just to point out how full circle all this stuff is to your point about all these overlapping communities it was actually garrett smith who is a reserve Marine, also was a contractor, did some work with BMNT at one time. It was a Stanford guy who is a CEO of a venture-backed company that happens to be backed by Booz Allen Hamilton that just revealed technologies, which is an awesome startup. He was the guy who texted me and said, hey, you should check out this MIU that's starting up. I'd already been tracking the Marine Corps Force Design 2030 and then the Talent Management 2030, which was trying to think more creatively about how to get former Marines interested in you know rejoining and or retaining Marines who might be considering getting out, either getting out entirely or or getting out into the reserves. So that was how I first heard about the MIU. And then when I met the founders, Matt Swindle, Dave Winokur, Rob Lusk, just amazing people. And each one of them, it was like talking to a sibling, right? Just fantastic people, great backgrounds, fantastic Marines. And incredibly mission driven, we're making so many personal sacrifices to help make this a reality because they believed in what they were trying to do. And I will do just about anything if I believe in the founders and have that level of trust and confidence in them. I had the privilege of working for some great folks with some great folks. And there's no replacement for that in my mind. So part of the conversation, once I realized that this was a real opportunity, before I got into the you know year plus of ridiculous paperwork and all this rest that I had to do it was a conversation with my wife. And once she got to the point where she had processed it and thought about it and was okay with it, then I had to talk to Pete our you know, my co-founder and our CEO. And I've gone and done all kinds of weird stuff during the course of BMNT. So Pete wasn't surprised when I, when I said <laughs> something crazy like this, like, I want to come back in. I've been out of the Marine Corps for 10 years. I have like a foot and a half of hair, but I'm really excited about about going back into the Marine Corps because <laughs> he used to make this joke <laughs> to people about, I knew William when he had short hair. And now he has to, now, his, now the joke is I knew William when he had long hair again, but he's always been so supportive of whatever I've had to do because he, again, when it's just this super high degree of trust and loyalty. There was times early on we were, we bootstrapped BMNT, and you know, we've never taken any outside capital and that's given us a lot of options when a lot of other people didn't have options, which I have really appreciated over the years. There was a time when my wife and I went to Nigeria Started another business together. Was gone for you know, five months. Pete was, you know, rolled his eyes, but was like, okay, yeah. Well, you know, he was very supportive, and it worked out really well. And, and that was a great experience that I wouldn't give up for the world. Then with Team Rubicon, I, some of, we would go deploy sometimes to go do humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and we might have to check out and be off email for a week or two or something like that. And again, these are just moments where we're, we all look at each other and we say, "Is this worth it?" not how inconvenient is this, right? But is this worth it? And the question is asked and the answer is yes. And then, you know, we just, we go for it and we figure out a way to make it work. This was a similar conversation again <laughs> with Beat. was, okay, like, do you really want to do this? Well, yeah, I really want to do this. And here's how I'm thinking about it. And here's how I don't think it's going to affect bm too much. And here's how I want to try to make the changes to make sure that it works. And he said, okay, like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm supportive. And That was absolutely huge to me. And the calculus on my end about why come back, right? There's a phrase that has been used so many times when I've talked to people about the Marine Innovation Unit. When it's a quote from Lieutenant General Bellin, who's the outgoing commander of Marine Forces Reserves, which is there is an irrational call to service. And I've heard so many people repeat that at the MIU because it does make absolutely no sense. And in our unit, we have so many people who have. Large families and really high pressure jobs. And those people should not be reserve Marines by any rational calculation. It makes absolutely no sense for them to add another important rock, big, heavy rock into their pack, but they do it and they love it and they're amazing people. And I was blown away by the quality of people. I had no idea what the Marine Corps was like in the reserves. I knew what the Marine Corps was like as a cult, you know, with guns, right? That's the active duty Marine Corps that I know. And I had no idea that when you stepped out and made the choice to focus on other things besides just the Marine Corps, which is what you should be doing as an active duty Marine. And I realized, oh, there's always other people who also, they love Marines, they love being Marines, but they also want to do other things with their lives. And I've met so many incredible people through that unit. It's one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Our first annual training, my roommate was a, he was the CFO of a publicly traded space company except he was just like a major, like a random major. Awesome guy. Awesome guy. And then, you know, the next time it was a Lance Corporal who was a coder, who was making a ton of money just as a developer. And he's, you know, he's a kid who was like a comm Marine. He was just a normal guy setting up, you know, comms equipment and stuff like that. And he's just like, where do these people come from? Why are you here? You know, and then you dig into this, it goes back to the the irrational call to service. And so, you know, the unit now is about 330 Marines. We have a slice of active duty that are on site at Fort Stewart in Newburgh, New York, which is where the unit is technically headquartered. We have some activated liaisons, some LNOs that are all across um, the DoD, all kinds of interesting places that are doing defense tech work, like you'd imagine strategic capabilities office and DARPA and all these kinds of spots. And then you have folks who are just the kind of reserve core. And those are people who do all kinds of interesting work in their civilian life that the Marine Corps doesn't know how to do so you you have people who are you know M&A lawyers you have people who are partners at McKinsey or BCG or something like that you have people who are heads of operations for like big privately held companies that are like really interesting product companies people that are engineering managers at Google I mean just like all these incredible people that the Marine Corps doesn't know how to work with and can't buy cuz we don't have enough money but you slap a reserve status on them and you give them a uniform and they can come in and do incredible things for the Marine Corps so the unit itself in some basic level, it's a holding pen for just incredible talent that the Marine Corps doesn't know how to use effectively. And we interface with the Marine Corps. We're a buy with them through organization. Our main channel partner is the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. We do work with other folks a lot, but that since the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab is the main mechanism through which the Marine Corps kind of ingests new capabilities and thinks it through ideation, wargaming, experimentation, etc., that's why it makes sense for us to go through McWill. But we scope out engagements across the sort of leadership echelon of the Marine Corps. So it might be a a one-star, two-star, three-star, somebody who wants to get our take on something or wants to figure out how to take a different approach or or kickstart a project that's stalled out, you know, or there's a bunch of different reasons why people want to work with us. And we will scope a specific engagement around that champion. And so we'll work with, they'll have action officers, we'll work with them, right? So they're discrete engagements that we have with different Marine units. And in some cases... We're working in partnership with Naval X and doing big things around talent management and other individual engagements through them. So, you know, we'll work with DIU and all these other groups. So, you'll see a lot of activity and we're in the process since we're, you know, not even three years old yet, officially barely a year old, that there's a lot of experimentation around what really does work and what are the best ways for these Marines to be used. And so, we're in that, in my role in strategy. I'm exploiting a lot of pattern recognition from helping, you know, having worked with all these other really early stage innovation organizations across the federal government and helping the unit avoid getting locked into the thing that we've been doing rather than the things that we should do to be most valuable for the Marine Corps. That's kind of my main role is being the gadfly that kind of continually pokes at all these different things that we think are like, okay, great, this is moving. This is going really well. Great. we'll Well, do does it matter? Does it matter if we do this or not? Right? So, that's a challenge. We have to justify our existence. The Marine Corps are a tax on the Marine Forces Reserve, and we have to justify that tax, right? Which is a great process for us of going through in terms of rigorously assessing, is this unit helping the Marine Corps achieve strategic goals, right? Looking at not just our current guidance documents, the 2030 suite, force design, talent management, installation, and logistics, not just that, but also beyond that. What's next? What's after that? because we can't just lock ourselves into the stuff that's supposed to happen between now, you know, in the next 7 years. So that's a lot of what the unit is intending to do. We just had a change of command ceremony, so we have a new CEO and he's going to put his stamp on it. He's going to figure out what he sees and the value he sees of the unit and he wants to he'll probably help change the mission a little bit to optimize for what he knows is important. You know, we have a new commandant. Things are going to change a little bit, but that's kind of MIU in a nutshell.
1: I mean, such an incredible opportunity to Take 15 years of experience in industry and now find a way to give it back or have a channel to give back in an even more specific way to the service. And I think, you know, as I was reflecting just on the entire conversation, what's been so interesting is the touchstone through each kind of topic that we've covered has been you bringing up elements of community. You know, whether it was at Stanford you talking about, or or a community college talking about the role that your family played, talking about the role that your wife has played, talking about the role that early friends at Stanford played in kind of finding folks that thought like you, community that you found in the defense innovation space, the co-founders at BMNT, the founding team at MIU. There's been these, and you've named them by name throughout this conversation, these kind of cornerstones of your own journey, the cornerstones of the defense tech market as it's evolved. We've seen that at Breakline consistently, that community above many things, almost above all else really is what matters and building that. And it not only is meaningful on a personal level, but it can be such an accelerant or differentiator at a professional level as well, the, the strength of that community that you're able to build along the way. I'd love maybe to close out the conversation. Would love to kind of circle back to a point that you made when you were talking about you know, thinking of a graduating class coming out of Stanford or thinking about a computer science major coming out of Stanford, you know, why would they choose the defense tech market? Why would they choose this portion of the industry to build their career? And I'm curious, as, as you reflect on where we're at today, you know, what's your answer to that? Why defense tech now? Why is that the place to build your career if you're making a career transition or making a jump into, into industry for the first time?
0: It's really hard to give a broad answer, right? Because people are coming from so many different perspectives. I tend to think about it from the lens of how I want to talk to my own grandchildren about the decisions that I made in my career. Because we lose broad perspective when we get into these difficult junctures where we do have to make these decisions. These decisions are being forced upon us. And most conversations that people have when they're trying to make tough decisions about their career, to your point about choosing A versus B or something like that, or even choosing to investigate. If B is government and A is hardcore commercial tech, big tech, right? Why would I go B at all? Why would I even start having these conversations, right? And I think that in my conversations with people, I always start back with their own background, how they were raised. What kind of a family did they have? What do their parents care about? What do they care about? Why did they choose one school over another school right? What's the hardest thing they've had to do when a friend betrayed them? Something like that. Very personal questions, because I don't think that a generic answer is particularly helpful in this case. There are people who want to join something because other people around them are joining, just a traditional social proof. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like to have a couple layers deeper in a conversation, because I can tell you what it looks like when it doesn't work. Like when I got to Stanford, I got into a couple UCs as well, and I was planning to go to Cal. My mom went to Cal, and my dad went to Stanford, which is considered a mixed marriage in the Bay Area. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't that much of a decision. My mom was kind of like, "Yeah, you should go to Stanford." But when I got to Stanford, I didn't think about it. Once I got in, it was like, "Yeah, of course I'm going to go to Stanford." But when I got there, you know, we talked about what happened in First Veterans Day, and I found meaning and purpose in trying to build this community. But it didn't happen in the way that kept me excited about being on campus as a student. So after my first year, I started to realize that this wasn't working for me. And by the end of my fifth quarter, so the winter quarter at Stanford, so in the middle of my second year, I dropped out and I went back in the Marines and I went to Afghanistan and came back a year later and then finished up my last two quarters. I wasn't able to Find the community that I needed in such a way that I felt good about the choices I was making. So I returned to a previously, a pre built community for me where I knew who I was. And that was a kind of a crazy decision. Again, going back to the irrationality piece, but it worked very well for me. And I was able to come back and finish Stanford knowing what I was trying to do. So understanding why I make decisions that on paper other people would say, of course, you should choose Stanford over Cal. I don't know if I should have or I shouldn't have. I did. That's what I did. I made it work for me. But I also didn't leave out the option of pausing or holding off if I realized that something wasn't working. So if who I thought I was was not the same person as I actually was, I had a way of, sort of stopping and saying, okay, this is maybe not happening the way that I wanted to. So when people are trying to make these decisions themselves, like, why would I do this? Why would I kind of get in this government service or not? I think the optionality can be preserved just purely in a sense of this is a reversible decision. The decision to explore the government and working for the government as a career path and the decision to go actually take a job in the government space or in a defense tech company. So the first step and then the second step, both of those are reversible. And the one thing that people fail to appreciate about having worked in especially in the defense space by itself but not just defense space just any of the very mission driven space especially in the federal government is that there is no alumni community like that community so going back to like well what happens if it fails if this whole venture doesn't work out or whatever well once you're in it people will answer the email people will pick up the phone people will help you in a way that i don't care what school you went to there's no alumni network that's going to do that. So your ability to pick yourself back up to find a new opportunity is unparalleled. I'm now the advisor at a really interesting autonomous ground vehicle company called SwarmBotics um, AI, which is an awesome company. They're going to do amazing things. The CEO was my boss 13, 14 years ago. He was another Marine. We both got out. He brought me into this startup and it was an angel-backed startup. We pushed super hard, ran out of runway, and he refused to take his last paycheck until I and the other junior employees were paid. And they never paid off. And so, this guy had a wife and two kids at the time. I was single. I had nothing going on. He didn't take six weeks of pay so because he knew that it was wrong, right? And that level, find me the person who like, oh, you went to Stanford, I went to Stanford. Well, and I'm going to, I'm in solidarity with you. I'm not going to take my last month and a half of pay. Like, who's going to do that? No one's going to do that. No one has that level of buy-in. Personally, they might be that kind of a person, but there's no, the strength of ties just isn't there. Steven is a Marine leader at an amazing level. And the depth of that connection is such that I know I can always trust him when he says he's going to do something. Or even if he doesn't say he's going to do something and I'm just wondering, okay, is he going to act in the way that I think makes sense? Yes, of course. And that allows us to move very fast. I signed on to be an advisor without an advisor agreement. We caught up, you know, weeks, months later. I didn't care. I wasn't worried about it, right? And you can move so much faster when you know you can trust people 100% when you can rely on them. So that's the piece about going defense that I think is really underappreciated. The functional value of having worked at a place like a palantir or an andorl or a, a skydio or a shield ai or all these other upcoming places the ceronix the, the swarmbotics all these places these folks they have a shared set of experiences and a shared set of values that matters because it's fundamentally different than the broader community the kind of zeitgeist of scale up big you know commercial tech or consumer tech and just it's all about money and then edging forward on the on what's possible technically that is a way that is a path but those people aren't the kind of people who take care of folks to the left and right they might individually be that way but as a community that's not an expected norm no one sets that standard you cash out with your equity you do your thing you know i'm going to do my thing it's very raw very kind of cutthroat that is not at all my experience with any part of the defense tech community and so part of the conversation when you go back to like Choosing the B path if you're coming out of school, part of the question is who do you want your friends to be? What kind of norms do you expect people to have around you? Are you the kind of person that wants to take you for a ride? like just get in cash out, do your own thing, focus on that, be one hundred percent about yourself and your family and that's a perfectly okay answer if that's what it is. but if your answer is also like it matters a lot to me about the people I work with and how I treat them and how they treat me and my ability to rely on them and not feel like they're going to screw me over then. I think everything else being equal, defense tech is the best place for you because that is the kind of mission-driven mentality that you're going to find there. And, you know, troop welfare, to use the like Marine (laughs) Corps, mission accomplishment, troop troop welfare, that's huge. And I see that every single day. And and, and as people normalize that kind of behavior, you have this community within the larger community of startups that just behaves very differently. And the expectations are very different in a positive way. So if you want to be a part of that community independent of how much money you make, there's a depth to relationships and a comfort in knowing how you're going to be treated by other people as more than just an employee that plugs into something and creates value. And that should be what everyone wants for themselves and for their friends, right? Is that kind of a life rather than a kind of a life where they hopefully they get to make the money, hopefully they get on the ride with the Facebook or the whatever. So they make enough that it's okay if their friends screw them over or they can't rely on the people around them.
1: Yeah, the community you build, the network you build, you build it it really does matter. William, I cannot thank you enough. This has been such an awesome conversation. It has been so fun to catch up. It has been so fun to hear your story, hear the journey you've been on through the defense tech industry. I know it's going to be incredibly impactful for our community of breakliners of partners. And so seriously, thank you again for for taking time to be with us today.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Sam.
1: guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline arena we're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved a little inspired and if you really had a good time feel free to head on over rate subscribe leave us a review it does help us spread the good word keeps these good vibes rolling yes we would love to hear from you thanks again and we will see you next time